Welcome to the Podcrastinate, bringing you a mixture of comedy, social and political commentary from New Zealand and around the globe. In other words, the show that's meant to make sense of everything, but quite often doesn't. Hello, I'm Darren Lees, a globally experienced businessman, politically to the right, stand-up comedian, comedy writer and of course, podcast presenter. And I'm Matt Danaher. I'm an amateur writer, traveller, podcaster and Instagram influencer and professional union organiser and socialist who likes to be optimistic about the future. Tonight we are very excited to be welcoming onto the Podcrastinators Shai Navort, Deputy Leader of the Opportunities Party and what we're going to do tonight is just have a bit of a chat about what the party stands for, what Shai stands for, try and get some details about their policies. So Shai, would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself first? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, so, yeah, my my background, I'm an Aucklander. I grew up here. I went to high school here. And I'm so excited that I get to be running. I'm running actually in the North Shore electorate. And so that's where I live now. And I went to high school in this electorate. So it's a special place for me. I guess my career background is in law. I did civil litigation and crown prosecution here in Auckland for seven years. Uh, And I loved it. I I really did, especially being a prosecutor. It's such a fundamentally important role in our society. But I really did get to the point where, you know, you're the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff and you are not stopping more cases coming through the door. You're just responding to things after they've happened. And after a while, you get tired of not being able to change the issues out there in society that are actually driving people into the criminal justice system in the first place. And it made no difference to my job when National was in power or when Labour came along, because neither of them have any policies that are really dealing with these underlying issues. And so when I looked around, TOP was the only party I could see really focused on the root causes of our problems. And that's really what, what led me to top. And I, I guess my kind of journey with them started, I guess, about 18 months ago when I just started volunteering for them uh, wow. a little bit in the background. You're deputy leader already. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I almost sometimes feel like these things happened by accident. But here we are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've already answered quite a lot of our questions. But Darren, I think you've got some. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. No, and thanks very much for joining us tonight, Shai. I really appreciate it. I mean, obviously, very uh, responsible job. Obviously, I, I could see why you chose to go out of that, but why choose politics, of all things? Yeah, it's a really fair question, and I ask myself that often. If there was another way to deal with these issues, I would have chosen that thing right? Because campaigning is incredibly difficult, especially as a small party, and particularly when you don't have a lot of money or media exposure. It really is not an easy path to choose, but it's the only way that I can see us really addressing these issues and bringing about real change. No, I mean, that's a a fair point. Um, You can't argue with that. If you want to change something, well, be the change, I guess. That's exactly it. And, and it'll be interesting because we've got a couple of questions later that we'll come on to about how you keep that motivation going with the polling and, you know, and how where you position yourself in the political cycle. But what would be really interesting to know is a little bit of a history of top. 
a little bit about what they stand for before we come on to the policies? Sure. So TOP was started, I think, at the end of 2016. So just about a year before the last election. And it was started by Gareth Morgan, who a lot of people out there seem to think is still associated with us, even though he has not been involved for at least, I think, coming up two years now. So we are independent. We are TOP 2.0. We have a new leader, Jeff Simmons, who is an economist, used to be an economist at Treasury. We really are completely different to what I understand top 1.0 was, mostly because it was Gareth's party, Gareth's money, and he had a lot to put into it. And arguably, that, that a lot could be said for that in terms of the exposure that that brought about that first version of top, right? But now we are completely different. We are grassroots. Our average donation in 2019 was $25. And yet we had more donations than all other political parties combined. Really? So we, yeah, so we wow. really are a grassroots movement, movement that is just continuing to grow. And everything basically that you see being produced is from volunteers. And, you know, unlike all of the other parliamentary parties who have staffers for you know everything we just do not have that and yet we are where we are today because so many Kiwis just care so much and are so concerned about where we're going right now with this country and are giving the everything all their time that they have to this movement. Do you think there's a fatigue around the top two parties? I mean obviously Labour are polling incredibly well and what have you but do you think the rise of the smaller parties is because of political fatigue of the top two? I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that under Labour or National, nothing really changes. Their, their policies, their approach, the outcomes under both have been the same, right? House prices have been rising for 30 years. Red or blue, it's made no difference. People can see in their own lives they are paying more on their rents every year, more to cover their mortgage when they're you know, entering the market than they ever have had to before. And yet their wages aren't keeping up with that. So the poor and our working classes, they are working harder each and every year, but struggling harder. And they're seeing they're not gonna get the policies or the outcomes from these main parties. So they are looking elsewhere. Just on that, just on people looking elsewhere, um, it's quite interesting because I don't know if you've tried the TVNZ Vote Compass. I have, yes, I have. Yeah, I've got a conspiracy theory that you guys have rigged that somehow because <laughs> because <clears throat> loads of people I know who are Labour and Green supporters basically do that and their top comes out first for them. Maybe it's because we just have the policies that <laughs> make sense. <laughs> well, that would, that would fit in with what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you say that because I was going to, I was going to sort of like, we'll get onto the policies now, but one thing I thought when I was reading your policies over the weekend is, wow, that sounds like a kind of like a good version of the Green Party. That's something that National would back. That's something that Labor would back, you know, when you're talking about tax, cannabis reform, you know, and all that sort of stuff. I, I was thinking like there's almost a bit of, I don't know, it's probably not intentional, but there's almost a bit of a, a mixture of them all. Um, but um Maybe that's what attracts people, that it's kind of got some of the favourable policies that they would associate other parties with. Well, one of the things that first interested me about TOP was how apolitical it really is. And this drives people nuts. 
because we are not in a box and people like to say, oh, you're left or you're right and now I understand you. But because we really are not in a box and yes, you mentioned the vote compass and they've placed us on that spectrum, but I mean, that's just where they think that we sit. I would argue that we're not even on it because, you know, as you said, some of our policies people will look at and say that's a typical left policy. Some of our policies, some will say, well, that's quite conservative. But our approach for everything is we look at what does what is the outcome that Kiwis want to see? For example, affordable housing. So we will just look at the evidence as to what needs to be done to achieve that outcome. And whether the solutions and the evidence is left or the evidence and solutions are right, we don't care. Outcomes matter more. Are you deliberately apolitical because when it comes to, you know, power and everything like that, you're not particularly boxed and you can choose to side with one side or the other? Or does TARP see that they, there's, a, there's a, a journey into power for them? The starting point is follow the evidence. If that makes us centrist and that allows us to work with any party, then great. Because, again, outcomes just matter more than playing politics for politics' sake. I had, I've got some questions, but... I just got distracted by notifications popping up on my laptop, so I just had to <laughs> shut some things down. But don't worry, I can edit all this out. <laughs> I'm we'll boring you already. <laughs> we generally edit most of Matt's stuff out anyway, so it's not uncommon. True, true. So I think it'd be good to come on to some of your policies because you've got some key headline ones that people are really interested in and you hear bandied around but don't really understand much about. Possibly one of your most famous ones that you're kind of the party that's associated with it is Universal Basic Income or UBI. I wonder if you'd just like to talk us through that a little bit. Yeah, I'd love to. So our Universal Basic Income is $250 a week for every adult, $40 a week for every child, and it's no conditions, no questions asked, and importantly, no clawback or no abatement rates. Because what I think a lot of Kiwis are not aware of at the moment is in our benefit system with the abatement rates, there's a huge welfare trap, which means for so many people, it makes no financial sense to start working because they're either no better off or actually worse off financially when they do. And what the UBI does is it completely removes the welfare trap. Because every hour you work above, you work in a week, you keep. And that's critically important because it finally creates, you get the basic level of financial support and you have an incentive to work because you won't be punished when you start to do so. It's also, I, I mean, I think this policy is a win for everyone, but it's particularly a win for our working poor. Those who are typically receiving working for families now, for example, and how it works in practice, it effectively creates a $39,000 a year tax-free threshold because at that, at that level, the amount of tax that you would pay under this policy, which is a flat tax of 33%, which together with the UBI is more progressive than our current system. Uh, so it takes those on the minimum wage above the living wage and, as I say, yeah, creates effectively a tax-free threshold at that 39000 level. But I think, you know, Really importantly, and sometimes it gets lost in this UBI conversation, is, you know, this movement around a living wage. And, of course, we support everybody having enough to live on. But what people don't often talk about with that living wage conversation is the single biggest driver of what drives up the cost of living every year is the rising cost of housing. Now, our businesses are not responsible for our housing mess. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to put that burden on our businesses. With this policy, we achieve the living wage 
but it's just not paid for by our businesses. So the obvious question to that is who pays for it? Yeah, so most of this policy is paid for with that flat tax of 33%. It's a $36 billion policy. 20 of it, so most of it, is this uh, flat tax. Uh, another big chunk is huge savings and bureaucracy because it is such an expensive system. And I think, you know, one of the criticisms with the UBI is why are you giving money to the rich? They just don't need it. But whenever you have any form of conditionality, one, people in need miss out, and two, it is so expensive to administer. So you get rid of the bureaucracy and you have huge savings. It will also minimize massively the need for working for families, for example, because automatically overnight, a family with two parents will be getting $500 a week, cash in hand, no conditions. So that it's, it's completely life-changing for so many of these families as well. Obviously, the flat rate of 33%, when does that start? Because obviously, at the moment, there's rates at 105 and 17.5, which obviously are with those lower earners. So if it became a flat of 33, it's kind of almost feels like, and this is where it's good to kind of get the, the, the kind of uh, your take on it, is that it's kind of like, here's some, but now we've changed the tax rate, so here's some back. So... Is, is that too simplistic? It, it depends how you want to think about it. So it's 33% on every dollar. It's a huge overhaul and simplification of what is a very complicated system at the moment where, you know, accountants and lawyers make a lot of money from people hiding their money in different ways because the system encourages and allows that. When you change it and put, bring a flat tax in, there's no hiding your money. So our richest don't need to pretend that they earn less than 70K a year because it just won't make any difference to their tax bill. Uh, but the reason why I said it depends how you want to look at it is because below $39,000 a year, it's effectively a negative tax. So you, you are still far better off. Like I said before, if you're a minimum wage earner, where I think I said you are 6000 a year better off than currently. And the benefits at the top end, so anything above $70,000 a year, you are $3,000 better off. But either way you look at it, every wage and salary earner is still better off under this policy. Yeah, I did have a play with the tax calculator on Sunday. At first is the national tax calculator. And yeah, you're right, that bottom end where you look at a under national, um, someone who's on 40000 a year would only be a grand probably better off under national, but six grand off under you guys. And then someone at the other end is probably five grand better off under national, but only three. It's three even worse than that. It's, it's even worse than that. So someone on under nationals proposal, if they're earning $30,000, they'll be $560 better off a year. And under tops proposal, they'll be just about 10 K better off a year. And why that's so important is because the evidence shows that low income earners, when they have more money, they spend it back into the economy and yes. high income earners save it. Yep. So at a time when we're trying to stimulate the economy, national's tax policy makes no sense. That's right. Low income earners, in fact, pay as much as 80% of their income straight back into the local economy. Um, so when people talk about throwing money away on low paid people, 
what they're actually saying is these low paid people are going in straight away, reinvesting the money in the local businesses, in the local economy. I think you're quite right. And I think you're quite right that um, the Opportunities Party is a lot more progressive than national when it comes to um, taxation and income for lower income people. And I would strongly urge any lower income people listening to this podcast to vote top before they vote national. Just throwing that in there for you, Darren. But that's just disgraceful bias. We'll get, we'll get to just why they to... shouldn't vote Labour either in a minute if you want. <laughs> Show you well, with you. I'm just about to cost us half our listeners, right? By coming, <laughs> back, by coming back on the abatement by coming back on the abatement issue, because um, although I'm not all over there, or not all over the exact uh, letter of the policy, obviously Labour have announced um, that as far as they that they intend to address. The, uh, the issue of people on benefits having a disincentive at the moment to earn by saying that they're going to massively reform the approach to abatement so that people will be able to earn more while they're still on benefits. And I'm just wondering whether, rather than going into the detail of that policy versus your policy, because at the end of the day, I don't want to cost us listeners and it's <laughs> is about people having a, a broad overview of, of, of what TOP stands for. Um, and not what Labour stands for. Do you think that it's actually Labour have brought that policy out as a reaction to um, top and the, UB, the idea of a UBI being popularised and especially in the pandemic and the wage subsidy and stuff like that? Because there was certainly a lot of talk at the time uh, around, well, if we can do a wage subsidy, why can't we do a UBI? They have a lot of image repair to do, right? Because they came out with this two-tiered welfare system during COVID and that would have lost them a lot of support by virtue of suggesting some people have lost their job are more deserving of financial support than others. And that just doubles down on this stigma already associated in our welfare system, which is a part of the UBI that we don't even often talk about. Um, whether that was in response to TOPS UBI policy or just generally the amount of economists that have come out and at least at a minimum called for helicopter payments that we, a lot of us were expecting to have seen in the budget that came out back in May and it didn't, which has been shown overseas, consumer spending goes up instantly. Um, so yeah, perhaps they're, they're trying to feel the room a little bit, but either way, it's insufficient and inadequate. In a similar vein, I guess, because um, it's taxation related, what about property tax? You want me to talk through TOPS um, affordable housing? Hey, houses? we've already lost awesome? half our listeners. Let's just um, <laughs> carry on through. Okay, great. Hopefully so... you've lost half your voters as well. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, except most Kiwis do realise that they have less cash to spend every year because a part of you know we talk about our housing crisis as a social and economic failure social is the one that most people can understand quite quickly housing costs are the number one driver of poverty and inequality in new zealand and we already have a lot of evidence and understanding of the issues poverty causes whether we're talking about criminal justice lower education outcomes more more negative health and mental health outcomes Probably don't need to go into that. But the economic failure associated with our housing crisis is less spoken about. The fact that we have more of our money and debt tied up in housing means less cash that we have available to spend in our businesses to support our jobs every week. That's less money going back into the economy. Also, buying and selling houses to each other does not create jobs or exports. That's right. It does not grow our economy. Right. So we need to accept that as a reality. Every time we grow 
our debt in housing, that is less money that we have available to go into our businesses to grow. And why that is, and this comes down to top tax policy, you have to get down the layers to find out the root cause of what's driving this problem in the first place. And a huge factor is the distortion in our tax system. And we have the most favorable system, tax system towards housing in the OECD. We tax businesses at some of the highest rates in the Western world and housing the lowest. And it is the different tax treatment of those different investments that drive speculators into housing. And that demand is what pushes up the price. And unless and until you deal with the different way we treat the tax of those different investments, you're not going to deal with this problem. So that's why Top says we have to even out that tax treatment and tax property in the way that we do other assets. And how our policy actually works is it treats the equity you have in property as if it was cash in the bank. So you have a million dollars, you put it in the bank, right? Let's just for argument and math's sake for a second, pretend you still get 3%. <laughs> That's great, you get 3%, but you pay tax on that. <clears throat> Sorry, you pay tax on that. So it's the tax that you would pay as if it was equity, as if your equity was cash in the bank. If it was a million dollars cash in the bank, you'd be spending about $10,000 a year on tax. That's what we're talking about here. We want to change the tax system to re-incentivize people to invest in our businesses that are actually productive assets that create jobs and exports. So, cool. I well, agree. I, I agree well, with everything you just said. But I have, I have a concern about it because obviously property tax relates to anyone that owns a property, right? Yes. So if you're an investor and you own property and you get taxed on it, surely they're gonna put that straight onto the rent. Here's the thing, most rental properties are already paying over 3% tax. Mm -hmm. It's not extra tax, it just takes up to a minimum level of tax. The vast majority of rentals are already paying that they won't be affected by this at all. It's just to make all assets be effectively productive. Another part of the story is we have 190,000 empty houses around New Zealand, 40,000 in Auckland alone. They're just sitting there waiting to make that tax-free capital gain. But if you put an annual tax on those properties, they need to become productive to service that tax. They're gonna have to turn them into rentals. So you're, all, you're going to be flooding the market with at least some more rentals, especially in Auckland, which has the biggest concentration of empty houses at the moment. And if there was an issue where the housing market crashed in a particular region, let's just say Southland or Westport or something, that obviously then may, means that those people are not eligible for tax payments, right? Because it has to deal with the whole positive equity and negative equity at the same time. That's exactly right. If they had negative equity, then the tax wouldn't accrue effectively. But you wouldn't get it's, nothing it's, back either. It's just whatever the equity is, that's what gets taxed. Okay. It's, it's not anything that yeah. the bank owns. Whatever portion of your property the bank owns, tax is irrelevant to that because banks will already pay tax. So my only other thought is, of course, going back to UBI, someone ends up three, $4,000 a year better off, but then has to pay $3,000 back in tax, they effectively could end up in the same situation. 
Yeah, there, there'll be some people who end up at net zero, right? But uh, you have to have a lot of equity in your property until it ticks over. And surprisingly, first home buyers, for example, are almost never, unless they went into it with a pile of equity, are almost ne never going to be straight away hit with this tax. It's going to take them some years to get to the level of equity before the tax clicks over. And so uh, it, it doesn't hurt first home buyers, which is really important. The other thing that I just drives me nuts about this housing crisis, and you know, we're hearing all the time this conversation about debt, and depending on who you're speaking with, particularly those on the right are talking about how dangerous all this debt is that we're taking on, and we need to really be watching it, and what a big problem it is, our poor children and grandchildren. Uh, those yeah. <laughs> people do not give a shit about debt to their children. If they did, they would not want house prices to increase. All house pricing increase does is push the cost and debt onto the younger generations entering the market in the first place. But that debt goes straight to them, so they don't seem to care. Yep, well said. I agree. Next, um, next opportunity to bash the Nats and Darren, <laughs> cannabis reform. Oh, we so agree on this, Matt. We have totally in agreement on this. Not. No. <laughs> Actually, no, before we come on to that, I'm joking, really. Before we come on to that, um, it's not a policy I don't think I could find on your website, but while we're talking about tax, which me and Darren, unlike maybe many of our listeners, do find interesting, I am curious as to whether the Opportunities Party has a policy on, and this is just a personal bee on my bonnet, in my bonnet that I'd really like to see Labour take seriously, GST, right? So why on earth does this country charge GST on things like fresh fruit and vegetables? Children's, children's clothes, clothes books newspapers and things like that which um basically means that um, lower income people are struggling to pay for essentials and actually find it cheaper to go to mcdonald's than they do to go to the greengrocers or the supermarket so as has the opportunities party taken a position on that we have a policy for a junk food tax which of 20 percent on food that will be categorized as junk food and that revenue from that tax, which is estimated to be around a billion dollars a year, would go to a certain number of things. So we want to use that money towards providing free dental for one in five Kiwis for the lowest income adult earners. We want to keep GP visits to $10. And also importantly, we want to upscale the provision of at cost fruit and vegetables. So you effectively, the program removes the middleman of the supermarkets who inflate the price and al allow direct purchasing from uh, the, the growers. Wow. So that would be like in some places in Europe where you have cooperatives, community cooperatives are formed and they buy their products from the growers and then send it straight into the communities. That's, that's exactly it. Wow. And they already have an example of this in Wellington, but it needs to be scaled up nationwide. Okay, wow. That's very interesting. Shall we talk about cannabis reform? Let's right. do. Lots of our listeners will be interested in that. Let's do it. I'm very interested in Shai's background in the legal system and how that lines up to cannabis reform as well. So as a former Crown Prosecutor, I can tell you prohibition has not worked, has not stopped people smoking cannabis has not stopped people growing it in large quantities and then supplying it to the community in huge numbers. If we know then that prohibition has blatantly failed, 
why would we continue with something not working? That's madness. We need to find a way that is going to deal with the problem that can reduce harm and then invest heavily in addiction services and rehabilitation services to reduce use. Treat it as a health problem where we can. Regulate it. Regulate it, the level of THC in these products so that people actually know what they're buying. Um, it, we have to try something new. This bill, this piece of legislation, it's not going to be perfect. You're never going to find a piece of legislation that is perfect. It just has to be better than the status quo. I so find... Sorry, shy. Uh, the only other thing I was going to say is TOP's policy before the 2017 election was to legalise it, regulate it, tax it. And it was only after that that the Greens started talking about it again and then moved it through Parliament. I just have a fear with... I think it's all done from the right angle. Um, the cannabis reform. The problem is whoever, whoever are the legal growers, the legal people, they're going to pay tax. And we all know that gangs don't pay tax. And what the gangs will do is they will just force people to make cannabis less. They'll force dealers to take less of a cut. And so they will always be able to make it cheaper than someone can manufacture it because they will use alternative means of keeping cost of cannabis down. And just there's a few things around the world, like I've been reading up on what's going on in America with their cannabis reform. And this is the biggest single concern to me because I work in manufacturing, is how on earth is this going to be policed in the workplace? And in Colorado and in California, where they're both legalised in America, before legalisation, workplace incidents stood at 4.5% were, were cannabis-related. That now sits at 9 so workplace incidents down to cannabis use doubled in Colorado and California after legalisation. And the biggest thing that worries me is potential workplace incidents, potential more fatalities on the road. And the fact that by legalising it, yes, we can probably control something, but I don't think it's going to shut down the black market. It's important to note that we're not following the Colorado or Californian models. We're following much more closely to what's happened in Canada. It's far more restricted. In Colorado in particular, for example, we saw this huge commercialization takeover. And that's not, our, that's not the current framework here. So I think that's just really important to draw that distinction. We're talking about even regulating, not allowing any single grower to have more than 20% of the market. And things like, measures like that are really important to stop the commercialization in the way that we've seen in that example. As for workplace innocence, or, or perhaps we start with the testing for drug driving, that is already something that police have to be checking. So all we will need to be seeing is just upscaling the checks that they do. You know, they have the booze buses, so we will see more, expect to see more drug testing booze buses right so they have the ability to do it it's just upscaling that that's not going to change it doesn't all of a sudden allow, allow cannabis driving to become legal in the same way that it's not legal to be drunk driving so uh, it's important to remember legalization allows us to regulate it it's not a free-for-all i'd love to keep talking about policies and stuff but we do have other questions and obviously you are limited for time because you're a busy electoral candidate <laughs> Back to the Opportunities Party, obviously, first of all, it's really tough to get 5%. I mean, first of all, 
it's unfa it is unfair to smaller parties or newer parties the um the five percent threshold that we have here in new zealand do you think it's realistic for the opportunities party in this election to get the five percent threshold or to win an electorate seat to get into parliament and if it's not are you guys in it for the long haul and i'm glad we've got the deputy leader here you are the right person to ask this question are you in it for the long haul and prepared to invest all that same time and energy into if not getting into parliament this time getting in next time or the time after that yeah to start with the beginning of your question yeah the five percent is a huge hurdle and even though over eight years ago the electoral commission told parliament to change the rules and that three percent would be the appropriate level but at least start at four Surprise, surprise, eight years later, no party wants to minimise their power that they have. Even though the rules are already skewed in favour of incumbents, funding is already skewed in favour of incumbents, you'd think they'd be satisfied with the amount of incumbent overburden, over power they already have, and yet here we are. Um, so do I think it's realistic that we can do this? I really do. There are, our support is growing all the time, and we are also heavily targeting the Ohario electorate, and that's Jessica Hammond. Anyone is listening and you are down, that is the electorate just north of Wellington Central. Follow her on Facebook. She is incredible. She's been a public servant for her whole career. She's amazing, and we think she has an excellent chance of winning her seat, but we are also going for that 5% for sure. There are so many Kiwis out there who are waking up to the fact that Labour or national outcomes have not changed. Voting for establishment parties when nothing changes is a wasted vote. And they are looking elsewhere for policies and solutions that will change what needs to be changed. And yes, we are here for the long run. Our core support base is so strong and uh, it's almost you know grow it's, it is growing all the time and it's almost when people come they are saying to us all the time wow this is what I've been looking for finally I have a party I can align with I wasn't going to vote I, I haven't been a voter for ages and then I found top or no party listens to me like top that kind of a thing we're just this home for people from the left and from the right as far as yellow and green go because uh, again, going back to that, being apolitical, they just want outcomes. So you say that um, voting for an established party is voting for no change, but realistically, if you are to get 5% or to win, and that electorate seat, that's Peter Dunn's old seat, isn't it? It, it is. is. So they, they have a history. understand. They have a history they, of smaller parties. They yeah. get um, it, right? Yeah, So, but if you do that, so say you achieve that, and say you end up with two or three MPs um, in Parliament, um, what difference will they be able to make when it comes to the hard-nosed coalition negotiations? Because I know from the point of view of Labour of what it was like negotiating with New Zealand first. So for you as a, as a smaller party, do you think you'd be able to achieve some of your headline uh, ambitions through playing that kind of role? And um, what would your red lines be? I think it's probably fair to say, unless the polls change dramatically, that it's likely to be some version of a Labour government, right? So it's for the public to decide who do they want to partner with Labour. And there are many, especially those on the right, who do not want to see a green Labour government, and that worries them too much. So they are going to be looking for something else. We, so, but, but you know, we have always said we would work with Labour or National, and we really would, because... We see them as the same anyway, and we they have slightly different priorities sometimes, and their rhetoric is slightly different, but ultimately, they are very similar. 
So we would really just go with whoever would give us more of our policies. I mean, our dealing with housing and our UBI are our top two priorities. And we've always said that. We've been clear about that. Housing is the basis of all of our woes, really. And that is our priority. And I do think that, you know, depending on where the power the polls fall out is going to determine a lot, but we've seen that middle maker power. And you just have to look at the budgets that Winston got for his pet projects compared to Green's. 30 times the amount of money for what he wanted. He didn't have 30 times the amount of votes. He had one percentage different, but that's just what happens when you have bargaining power. And it's something that the Greens and ACT will never have. Just something I want to make a point of, Matt, when you talk about what can minor parties do to a coalition. Um, they can hold up $3 billion of um, shovel-ready projects over $11 million. I know, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Not even funded. They can <laughs> stop you from putting capital gains tax in. I don't want to carry on, right? But You, you could know, carry can... on. Yeah. The, the Light seat. rail. What else yeah. is there? Yeah, I'm sure the list is very long. <laughs> a, there is a massive. But coming back to your point on people were saying they were not going to vote, and I, the people are very polarised on this. I, I lived in Australia for four years where voting was compulsory. Do you think voting should be compulsory in any democratic society? I know that in Australia they do typically have a higher voter turnout. But... That just is forcing people to do something. It's not addressing, you know, in 2017, 700,000 people did not vote. So if you were just forcing them to vote, you're not really addressing the underlying reasons of why they didn't want to in the first place. And they're not still really being heard in that, in that situation. What we really need to be doing is finding out what is being, why are they being failed? You know, what is it that's turned them away from the political system? Why are they disengaged? Why have they made themselves disenfranchised effectively? We need to, this, their voice still matters and we need to figure that out. So I, I sort of, my personal view is that it would just put a bandaid on a problem and not address it. Yeah, 91% of Australians turned out to vote and 9% decided to get fined by the look of it. So um, yeah, you're right, it gets people out, but does it mean they're more politically engaged by the fact they're forced to vote? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Offer them something to vote for. Definitely. So you, as a candidate in the North Shore, you're, are you going out canvassing or are you using social media and just other fancy things, especially given... Well, <laughs> COVID has really thrown a huge spanner in that. So since this new level three started, you know, whenever it was now, I've literally lost track of time. But we, of course, had to stop going door knocking and had to stop having that really meaningful one-on-one -on -one engagement with people in real life. And so that has been a huge hit, really, because yes, there is social media and you can make use of that, but there is nothing better than real life conversations with your potential constituents to listen to them. What do they want and what can you offer them? So, Yes, I've been mostly doing social media, but I've been out holding up the signs. Um, you know, we've been flyering, um, putting our flyers in letterboxes. So a little mix of conventional and a little mix of um, doing things off the, the internet. Cool. <laughs> Do you have a big campaign team there in your electorate or is it just you and your family? Um, 
I do have my family helping me, but I am also lucky to have uh, volunteers as well. So, yeah, I have a, a little bit of a group here from about 10 of us. Obviously. Is that what keeps you going? It's just that level of support. It makes a huge difference. Um, but what keeps me going, honestly, every single day is the knowledge that no other party has a policy that is going to deal with housing. The Greens wealth tax is an indiscriminate tax across all investments. will do nothing for the tax differential. Labor's income tax on the highest income bracket will increase house prices. Nationals tax is only going to give more cash to the rich people. House prices will just keep rising. Act, think that the only problem here is the RMA, which is only just a part of the story. These parties don't have solutions. And unless and until we deal with this, we are just going to see rising inequality that is leading to so many of our other issues. No, thank you. And one, one view I'm very interested on is, and it's been, as you revert to on the last answer, the biggest thing that's happened, of course, not only this year, but in a very long time, is obviously COVID and the lockdowns and that. Does, does Top have a view on, you know, can we just keep locking down forever or have we just got to find a better way? There's a lot of that. I mean, I'm, it, it's great to have seen, to have had a leader and a government that has listened to the science and the experts on this. And it has served us very well overall. And what I've really appreciated is seeing Shane Retty come out and support the elimination strategy because that is as much of an acknowledgement that he would, if in power, would also follow the science despite what Jerry Brownlee tries to say. I think following the science is critical. Um, is it perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, obviously, we had a huge learning lesson between the two lockdowns of a massive missed opportunity where contact tracing should have been happening. As a matter of course, we should have been using COVID trackers the entire time. We didn't. So um, having the quarantine facilities in our biggest economic hub of the country doesn't make a lot of sense. So are there things we'd do differently? The first thing would be taking quarantine out of Auckland as a starting point. But I think it's also important to remember that it is not a dichotomy of choosing health or the economy. And it's important to remember that our economy was going to be affected no matter what we did because we were losing our biggest export, our tourism. And so that was going to have a huge impact on this economy no matter what we chose. If we didn't do elimination strategy and we followed the Swedish model, for example, and we just, just let it go through the society a little bit, we would still see huge parts of our society getting sick, being off work, and huge sectors not being able to continue because they would be understaffed because of the amount of people homesick. So either way you look at it, our economy is going to be affected. Yeah. I mean, I, just if there's a better way, I'm, I'm not convinced keep shutting down and shutting down. I think it's just going to keep crippling and crippling to a point where we're not able to come back from it. If, there is, if there's expert advice on another way to do this, then that would be wonderful for sure. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Okay, well, you convinced me. I'm going to go out and vote for top. No, no I'm not really. I'm still going to vote Labour. But yeah, what I want, what I <laughs> want is prices rise. I'll blame you, Matt. <laughs> that's right. What I want is a top top. I like those top tops. Go the one that you're one. wearing. One. The top top. That's what I want. <laughs> you should definitely get one. I'll get one off the website, Darren. Thank you. <laughs> Buy me one. Matt. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for donating to our campaign. 
<laughs> exactly. One thing I'm finding is this is feeling like it's turning into the most divisive election campaign in quite a while. I mean, there's, there's, there's considerable nastiness on both sides of the main party. And even when you go out onto the streets, you know, billboards being punched down no matter what the parties are, you know. Um, you know, this morning I saw a video with the advanced New Zealand candidate in Green Bay, just his had just been absolutely trashed. Are you guys seeing any of that kind of nasty kickback towards top or? Oh, I, I mean, not perhaps as much as some political parties might be experiencing. Um, but you yes, certainly, I mean, mine just were torn down over the weekend. All parties were torn down except Labour's. So yes, we, we're definitely not out of the woods. Some of our candidates have had to clean their signs multiple times, have even been out on the street cleaning up Labour's and Nationals as well, because, you know, you just kind of help each other out. But yeah, it, it is a huge problem and it is really divisive. And at the end of the day, what is a huge source of creating it being so divisive and so heated is Facebook and is the algorithms. Because what we see is people on the right only get information that feeds the thought patterns that they already have. And that is the only information they receive and nothing challenges that. Same thing if you're on the left. So it's... Honestly, Facebook has so much to answer for. It is a real catch-22 of it being a political party and seeing that and having to use it because at the end of the day, we have to go where the people are, especially in COVID. We can't go to their houses anymore. So you have to go where the people are, but it is a dangerous platform for that reason. It has had no checks on balances on misinformation around COVID. Conspiracy theories, theorists are going crazy through that platform because there is just no check on that. And it's really dangerous. But I mean, at the end of the day, what is the, one of the biggest drivers of those turning to conspiracy theorists? Why they have lost so much public trust in government and in our institutions and in our political system? Rising inequality. They are working harder and struggling harder every year because governments aren't helping them. So they have to go to some false idol because they just know something's not right and they just don't know how to fix it. One thing that me and Matt agree on, and I think we still agree on Matt, it's not, there's not a lot, but this is one. We actually blame the mainstream media as well. I think the mainstream media are terrible. I think mainstream media pol politically in New Zealand is appalling. That, that model of the clickbait has a lot to answer for, and I agree with you there completely. Even, you know, you I think you mentioned right at the start, it's really hard as a minor party, and we struggled to get cut through in the mainstream media, and yet if something ever goes wrong in a minor party, mm. you'll hear about that. <laughs> you know, this happened to the Greens, for example, some months ago now. They released, finally, ticks that they released a policy, a welfare policy, and it got some coverage, and yet some spat between one of their MPs and Rose Matafeo, a comedian, got more airtime because it's clickbaity. I mean, who gives a rat's ass about that, right? But, you know, they just are only interested in what sells. And I think we've been a victim of that a lot because our policies aren't, you know, straightforward. They are complex because they are complex issues. Simple answers <laughs> are not usually right. And so because they often don't understand them, they can't explain them, they don't talk about them. But although you have you have hit an interesting point now, and this is one of the criticisms I come across in policy circles, um, certainly on the centre left um, of the Opportunities Party, is that one of the criticisms that people have is that Top has got all these interesting policies that people agree with, but can't quite 
figure out how to explain them really simply to people. And actually, just because it is complex doesn't mean you can't explain it simply. And um, there's been quite a lot of work done on that um, by other people. And I was just wondering whether there's been a debate about that kind of thing within TOP that you can share? Absolutely. And that's why we've moved towards a much more visual campaign this year. And so you'll see a lot more graphs coming out of us and um, a lot more just imaging and videos because that is easier. And um, we've ups upscaled the number of policies in a minute um, videos as well that um, are on our YouTube playlist and on our Facebook, of course, and people can understand those. They're digestible. There's literally a minute and less. So um, that's that I find has been a help. But yeah, it's a really fair point. It's something we're always aware of. I think it's one of those ones as well, you know, um, because we are so detailed oriented and our policies are so thorough. We and our fans hold us to a really high standard when it comes to our policies and getting into that nitty gritty. And yet National come out with a $30 billion policy and no one cares that it's not costed. Yeah, <laughs> so it's right. sort of like we get held to a standard that other <laughs> mainstream parties just are never held to. Yeah. You know so what you're, funny. That's right. You know what your economic policy is not wrong, Matt? Because Labour don't have one. That's why it's not wrong. Oh, we have. We've got mo it's, economics is at the heart of all of our policies. But enough about Paul Goldsmith's um, two sloppy holes. Or, or Shy, have you got anything else you want to share with us? Yes. Oh, voting the same part. I, the only, I mean, I've already said it, but I mean, so you can cut it out. But honestly, when voters go to vote this year and they vote for Labour or National, you are just going to get same old, same old because doing the same thing and expecting a different result is madness. They haven't delivered. 30 years of not delivering doesn't change overnight. And this election is too important to just vote for the same old that doesn't work. You're right. I will cut that out, but thanks. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Yeah. Just joking. You can. Um, That's fine. Keep final question, though. I'll tell you what, this, this episode is actually going to be more optimistic and less depressing than our last one, I'll tell you. This is good. <laughs> one, one thing I could just mention before you go on to the question, I don't know whether you want to bring this in or not, but literally in the last five minutes, the latest Colmar Brunton poll has been released. So, like, literally now. All it's right, just all right tell me it. Tell me oh, it. What is it? Are they well, in it? I'll top in it. Yeah, top are in it. So, Labour can govern alone on 48. They've dropped 5%. National have dropped to 31. Uh, Actor at 7. Um, the Greens are at 6. So the hey. Greens are going to make it. That's disgraceful. And I'm definitely in your boat of fearing a Green Labour. Just horrific. <laughs> um, New Zealand First are on two. The New Conservatives are on two. Mary Advanced New Zealand and Topper on one. So we need to get that one up. Well, we, like get that from we sure do. Take it from Labour. But let's be honest. It, am I right in thinking the Colmore Brunton ones, they're the ones that have been unreliable? Massively. They have jumped around a lot, it's Easy. fair to say. They, they've had a lot of jumping, but we haven't had one in some weeks now, right? So mm. I guess it's kind of now more difficult to measure them against each other. I'm not surprised Labour dropped, and this has not been like typical, because another lockdown, but they were going to get treated harsh for that. But what is success? I, I know you've got another question, Matt, but this is just a quick one. Mm. What's success for top? What would you go, yeah, that's a great result? I mean, I know everyone wants five, but what, what would you be really satisfied with? Oh, I'd be really satisfied with 
the same that they got in 2017. Which was yeah. again? Two and a half. Oh, yeah. No, that was pretty good, actually, for a new party. When we have no money mm. and we're literally competing against parties who have, well, Labour and National have two million to spend and we have, you know, literally like nothing in comparison. We got 145k from the Electoral Commission. When you compare that to, you know, the millions and the other parties, it just doesn't measure against it. So... Um, and especially when you measure that against the amount of money that Gareth put into it in 2017. So yeah, if we if we got the same, that would be a huge win. But obviously, I, I want us to get the 5%. And I think New Zealand, genuinely, I talk about this a lot. I know that we are a long shot. I hear the polls, I'm not stupid. It's a long shot. But I genuinely believe we are our only shot. And that's why you guys have to keep at it if you're not successful this time. Exactly. So my final question was just going to be, what's the funniest thing that you've come across while you've been campaigning? The funniest thing? Mm. I got got followed. I don't know if it's funny or disturbing, but anyway. I I got followed up a road um, by a guy in what can only be described as a kidnappy van. And um, I turned around, I finally turned around after I felt like he had been following me for a while and took my photo. So I started filming it. So you can go on my Facebook page and watch it if you want to see it. Um, but he um, starts yelling at me for lettering uh, junk mail boxes, which the council bylaw is very clear, does not apply to electoral material. Thankfully, right. you, cannot contract, right. you cannot contract out of democracy. And if the worst thing that happens to you in a democracy is you get stuff in your letterbox that you don't really want, then consider yourself lucky that you live in a democracy. But yeah, anyway, so he accosted me, basically just screamed and swore at me. And then the conversation, when I tried to explain it was electoral commission, electoral material, he drives off calling me an effing communist. (laughs) (laughs) It was confusing. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just sold a van. I was going to say, that was you, Darren, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) If it had been me, I'd have been calling you a Tory. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was very funny. Oh, well, we'll share a link. If that video's on your Facebook page, we'll share it's a link page, in the yeah. show notes. <laughs> Jai Navot, um, North Shore candidate and deputy leader for the Opportunities Party. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been outstanding. Thank you.